0: The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect those of The Murderish Podcast. Sensitive topics are discussed. Listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions regarding sexual abuse of minors and an adult, though I do not go into detail. Listener discretion is advised. When Patricia Esparza was arrested in October of 2012, nobody could believe it, not even Patricia. She had spent the last decade living abroad, working as a respected psychology professor. There was no way she could have anticipated that returning to the US would bring to the forefront an event from her distant past. As more details came to light, the complex nature of this case would explain why it remained unsolved for nearly two decades. This is Jamie, and you're listening to Murderish. Join me as I walk you through the complicated case involving Patricia Esparza. This case takes us to Santa Ana, California, in the mid-1990s. This city in particular has played an important role in Mexican-American history due to its proximity to the U.S.-Mexico border. Located just 30 miles south of Los Angeles, Santa Ana has seen several waves of migration from Mexican immigrants seeking work and a better quality of life. The early arrival of this new population was met with resistance in the form of gentrification and white flight into the surrounding suburbs. Today, Santa Ana has the second-highest population in Orange County. According to the United States Census Bureau, as of 2019, nearly 78% of the population is Hispanic. Making up the majority of the city's demographics has given Latinos a more firm stronghold in state politics and overall culture. In 2016, the New York Times deemed Santa Ana the face of a new California. As promising as this sounds, city life in Santa Ana has rarely been easy or safe. In the 1990s, the city's violent crime rate peaked in Santa Ana, became notorious for having the highest homicide rate in all of Orange County. Over time, there has not been much improvement. According to a 2004 study conducted by the Nelson A. Rockefeller Institute of Government, Santa Ana was ranked as the nation's most difficult city in which to live, with 21% of the population living below poverty level. While the city currently maintains a violent crime rate well above the U.S. average, it's also rich with several historic districts, art galleries, coastal recreation outlets, and authentic Mexican cuisine. Residents enjoy its beautiful climate, low cost of living, and easy access to family amusements, Santa Ana is just a short drive to both Disneyland and Knott's Berry Farm. Norma Patricia Esparza was born in 1975 in El Terre, Mexico. The rural southern village had no sewers or running water at that time, and the quality of life there was bleak. Like so many immigrant families striving for a better life, her father headed to America to provide for his family. Her father's factory job earned him a modest income, which went almost entirely to his wife and his two young daughters. Juana was the first child, and Norma, who often went by her middle name, Patricia, arrived a few years later. Around 1980, when Patricia was five, the family left Mexico to join Mr. Esparza in Santa Ana to start a new life. The family would soon expand to include two younger brothers. To make ends meet, Mrs. Esparza worked several odd jobs, which included making floral arrangements at a local orchard during the day, cleaning offices as a janitor at night, and cleaning houses on the weekends. Long work hours meant she was frequently away from home. Whether she knew it or not, Mrs. Esparza's absence fostered an unsafe and abusive environment for her daughters. Soon after moving to the US, Patricia's father began sexually abusing her. This trauma would continue for seven long years until Patricia was 12. As so many victims do, she remained silent about what was going on. The abuse came to light only when Patricia's sister, Juana, was molested by their father at age 13. Juana told her mother about the abuse, but nothing changed. Their father remained in the house. According to a Slate article, Mrs. Esparza was often physically abused by her husband. Perhaps fear of her husband was the reason she did not do much of anything to help her girls. Without a functional environment at home, Patricia had to find her own coping mechanisms She buried herself in books, withdrawing from the rest of the world. Looking back at that time, she told Slate, Shutting down was the only way I could deal with the harrowing experience. I felt utterly helpless and just unable to protect myself. Against the odds, Patricia was an excellent student and a gifted track runner. Soon, her academic and athletic performance caught a school counselor's attention. Patricia was identified as an ideal candidate for a nonprofit program called A Better Chance, which to this day offers academically talented students of color access to the best educational opportunities for middle school and high school, according to their website. Just before entering eighth grade, Patricia and a friend were both granted scholarships to the elite Phillips Exeter Academy. Notable alumni include writer Gore Vidal and Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg. Learning alongside wealthy pupils was quite a culture shock for Patricia, but she managed to thrive. She went on to study at Pomona College, the founding campus of a series of prestigious universities within the Claremont Colleges Consortium. Santa Ana was a straight shot down the 57 freeway, so Patricia could visit her younger brothers easily and try her best to protect them. At Pomona College, Patricia majored in psychology with a minor in women's studies. The life she was building gave her hope. Maybe she could finally put the past behind her. Then, in a single night, everything changed. I love accomplishing tasks without ever leaving the house. This is one of the reasons I'm a huge fan of Warby Parker. Warby Parker makes boutique-quality eyewear at a great price point. Whether you need eyeglasses, contact lenses, sunglasses, or an eye exam, Warby Parker has got you covered. I'm actually wearing my Warby Parker eyeglasses as I record this. To get started, you take a simple quiz on the Warby Parker website or the app, and then you'll get eyewear style recommendations. Just choose 5 of your favorite styles, and Warby Parker ships those styles right to your doorstep, for free. Once you've chosen your favorite style, ship all 5 of them back in the prepaid packaging, and then Warby Parker sends you the style of eyewear you chose. You can even upload your eyewear prescription, so that your eyewear arrives with your prescription already included. My Warby Parker prescription eyeglasses are so well made and really stylish. The fit is great, so I can wear them every single day for hours on end. Don't let your FSA or HSA dollars go to waste. Put them to good use on Warby Parker prescription glasses, prescription sunglasses, contact lenses, and eye exams. Warby Parker is committed to providing exceptional vision care online and in stores, offering eyeglasses, sunglasses, eye exams, and contact lenses. Glasses start at $95, including prescription lenses. Try Warby Parker's free home try-on program. Order five pairs of glasses to try at home for free for five days. There's no obligation to buy. Ships free and includes a prepaid return shipping label. Try five pairs of glasses at home for free at warbyparker.com murderish. My husband and I have been using ginger essential oil to relieve stress and soothe muscle pain from workouts. That's ginger with two J's. My husband uses the convenient dropper cap to put a few drops into his hands, and then he rubs it directly on his lower back where he has the most pain. Yes, you can put ginger essential oil directly onto your skin, because it comes pre-mixed with jojoba and evening primrose carrier oils. So there's also no need to mix ginger essential oil with anything. It's ready to use right out of the bottle. When I start to burn out in the afternoons, I just put a little bit of ginger essential oil on my neck. The scent is really pleasant, and it keeps me going until my workday is done. With this product, you know you're getting the highest quality ginger oil because their special extraction process helps remove micro impurities. I'm telling you you need ginger essential oil in your life and right now I have an amazing deal for my listeners 20% off your first purchase. This is only available at my special URL ginger.us/murderish. That's slash murderish you don't want to miss out. Again, that's ginger with two j's.us/murderish. When a service comes around that makes your life easier, you've hit the jackpot. With HelloFresh, you don't have to put any thought into the dreaded question, "What's for dinner?" HelloFresh offers fresh, pre-measured ingredients shipped right to your doorstep. My daughter and I get excited when a new box of HelloFresh arrives because we've been having fun cooking the meals together. She's 8 years old and that's how easy it is to prepare HelloFresh meals. What I love is the time savings, there's no need to take a trip to the grocery store, and I don't even have to chop any ingredients. HelloFresh does it for me. My daughter and I recently made the HelloFresh one-pan pork carnitas tacos, and they were a huge hit with the family. And I only had to clean one pan afterward. HelloFresh is the number one meal kit. They offer vegetarian, calorie-smart, gourmet options, and more. So you're sure to find a meal plan that fits your needs. Go to HelloFresh.com Murderish14 and use code MURDERISH14 for up to 14 free meals, including free shipping. That's HelloFresh.com Murderish14 and use code MURDERISH14 for up to 14 free meals, including free shipping. It was during the spring semester of 1995 when Patricia was a 20 year old college sophomore. The previous August, she had been working a summer job at a clothing store when 25 year old Gianni Van entered her life. Van was the assistant manager of a local shoe store with ambitions to launch a career in fashion design. He wasted no time in asking Patricia out. They continued seeing each other every few weeks for beach and movie dates. But Van quickly became too possessive, and Patricia broke things off with him in February of 1995, after only six months of dating. She told Van she needed to focus on her studies, and they parted ways amicably. The following month, Patricia was home in Santa Ana for the weekend, visiting her siblings. That Saturday night, she and a friend from Pomona joined her sister Juana for a dinner at El Cortez a Mexican restaurant that often featured live music. After eating, the three young women headed for the dance floor. Patricia was approached by Gonzalo Ramirez, a 24-year-old insulation installer who had two young children. He asked Patricia to dance, and at the end of the night, he asked for her phone number. She gave it to him because she thought he seemed nice. Ramirez phoned Patricia the following morning, inviting her to breakfast. Patricia agreed, but only if she could bring a friend with her. The breakfast date went well, and afterwards, Ramirez offered to drive both girls back to Pomona. It was a 25-mile drive, and the ride would save Juana the trouble, so Patricia accepted his offer. Upon arriving back in Pomona, Patricia's friend was dropped off at her dorm. Ramirez then asked Patricia to show him around the campus, but first he asked her for a glass of water. According to Slate, she replied, "'Well, I have a lot of work, but sure. "'I have to drop my stuff off, "'so let's just go up to my room.'" She lived in a single dorm, so there was no roommate Patricia needed to check with before inviting company. Once they were in the privacy of the dorm room, Ramirez reportedly turned aggressive and made several sexual advances. Standing at a petite 4 foot 9 inches, Patricia's attempts to physically resist were in vain, and Ramirez proceeded to rape her. The following day, Patricia visited the campus health center. She informed a school nurse that she had been date-raped and needed the morning-after pill. An examination was also performed by a campus doctor. Yet a report only contained the details unprotected sex and morning after pill. Patricia also told a professor about the assault to explain why she had missed an important deadline. That amounted to three school officials who failed to notify authorities about the serious crime. Two weeks after the assault, out of the blue, Patricia received a call from Gianni Van. He told her he missed her and asked if he could come to Pomona to spend time together. Van hoped they could connect again and rekindle the relationship they had before. Patricia agreed and they spent a Saturday together exploring the college town of Claremont. Though Van likely felt good about reconnecting with Patricia, he perceived that something seemed off about his ex-girlfriend. At first, Patricia denied anything was wrong. But later that night, she relented and told Van about the sexual assault. Van was absolutely livid. He initially blamed Patricia for the rape, though his rage was quickly redirected to the alleged perpetrator. From Van's perspective, whoever did this to Patricia deserved to be taught a lesson. According to a police report, Van took her to El Cortez restaurant on two different occasions to see if they might catch Ramirez there. Van asked Patricia to point her attacker out if she saw him there. And on the night of April 15th, she did just that. On the night that Patricia spotted Ramirez, Shannon Grease and Cody Tran, two of Van's cohorts, waited in a white Chevy Astrovan outside. When Ramirez exited the restaurant with his friend, Noel Reyes, Van and his friends tailgated them. It was late by this time, nearly one in the morning, when most people were starting to settle down for the night. The roads were empty. About a mile past El Cortez, as Ramirez was stopped at a red light, the Astro Van rear-ended the vehicle he was driving. Ramirez pulled over and exited the vehicle expecting to exchange insurance information with whoever had accidentally rear-ended him. As Ramirez's friend Reyes would later tell police, he peered into the Astrovan and saw three men and a woman. Two men got out and began punching Ramirez. Just as Reyes was getting out of the car to defend his friend, A third man emerged and appeared to have a gun. With no other recourse, Reyes began running down the block as he yelled for help. He happened upon a Motel 6 and beckoned the on-site security officer for help. But by the time both of them had returned to the intersection, the white van had vanished. Ramirez's blue pickup truck remained at the scene, the engine still running. One of his shoes was spotted in the gutter it was immediately obvious that Ramirez had been abducted. Santa Ana police were notified right away, and the only leads they had were Noel Reyes' testimony and the blood left behind on the pavement. Detectives eventually retrieved a broken wristwatch from the scene, and then they began searching for Ramirez. Meanwhile, Van and his friends had their hands full. They had taken Ramirez to Accurate Transmission, a car repair shop in Costa Mesa owned by newlyweds Cody and Diane Tran. Shannon Grease worked at the shop and was a casual acquaintance of Van's. According to an Associated Press article, the men used chains to suspend Ramirez from the ceiling by his wrists. His legs dangled off the floor as blood poured down his face and torso. Sometime during the physical assault on Ramirez, Patricia was picked up in another car by Julie Rojas, Shannon's girlfriend at the time. They waited at a bar less than a mile east of the transmission shop until they heard from Van. When they arrived at the shop 30 minutes later, Patricia was completely horrified by what she saw. With a gun aimed at Ramirez, Van asked her if this was the man who had violated her. She screamed, saying they had the wrong guy, and then she retreated to a loft area of the shop that was used as a bedroom. According to Orange Coast magazine, while she hid in the loft, Patricia heard the group discussing whether they should kill Ramirez. Upon exiting the loft, Patricia reportedly saw Cody Tran spraying a bottle of chemical solution on the walls. Soon after the traumatizing ordeal, Van drove Patricia home. She asked him what happened to Ramirez, and Van reportedly told her they had let him go. As Patricia would soon learn, that was the furthest thing from the truth. On the morning of April 16th, seven hours after the attack on Ramirez, a passerby on the 405 freeway near Irvine spotted a body by the side of the road. Irvine police officers at the scene noticed the victim's face and neck were wrapped in strips of blue towel, the same kind you might find in gas station restrooms at the time. Bloody gashes were scattered across the victim's head, shoulders, back, and arms. Two fingers on one of the victim's hands had been almost completely severed. This had been a merciless, savage attack that did not appear to be a random killing it was personal. Aside from the massive injuries sustained by the victim, officers also noted his shoes were missing. One sock also appeared to be dirtier than the other. For now, the strongest lead they had was the shredded blue towel enrobing the body. At the time, the vicious crime barely received any attention, even after the body was identified as Gonzalo Ramirez. Due to the high rate of violent crime in the area, it's likely Ramirez was viewed by the general public as just another statistic, his death possibly a consequence of local gang violence. Once the body was identified as someone who was a Santa Ana native, the case was transferred from Irvine to Santa Ana, where detectives Ben Meza and M. Dominguez from the homicide unit led the investigation. Right away, they connected the victim to another crime that happened that night the abduction at the stoplight near El Cortez restaurant. When Noel Reyes was interviewed, he said he had no idea why his friend's attackers would want to hurt him. They were complete strangers to both himself and Gonzalo Ramirez. Reyes was crushed to learn that his friend had been murdered, and he wanted to assist in catching those responsible. He tried his best to recall any physical characteristics of the assailants. One was tall, over six feet, and another man wore his dark hair in a ponytail. That was all he remembered. Investigators questioned several other people who knew the victim. When asked about a potential motive, Ramirez's brothers told them the lurid details of his personal life. Ramirez supposedly had three girlfriends in the States, as well as a wife and two young kids residing in Mexico. While jealousy was strongly considered as a motive for the crime, none of the American girlfriends seemed suspicious after being interviewed. During the third week of May, a search of Ramirez's apartment was performed, where he had been living with a roommate, Elo Silva. Detectives picked up a phone bill sitting on Ramirez's desk and noticed writing on the back. According to the Associated Press, it read, "Patty and listed two phone numbers denoting school and home. Silva was asked if he knew anyone named Patty. He told Detective Meza that several weeks before, Ramirez had been in the dorm room of a girl by that name. He told Meza he only remembered this detail because his former roommate had bragged about the encounter. According to Slate, Silva had been lying on his bed when Ramirez grabbed the cuffs of his pants and yanked them off in one swift motion. That's the way I took the pants off the girl I had sex with, he said. Upon learning about Ramirez's alleged interaction with Patty, investigators immediately began looking for her. The phone numbers scrawled on the bill were soon traced to Patricia's dorm in Pomona and her family's residence in Santa Ana. On June 8th, Patricia was brought in for questioning. She confirmed she knew the victim and told detectives about the sexual assault. She also told them about confiding in her ex-boyfriend. Detective Meza asked if there had been any indication he might retaliate. Patricia denied any knowledge of a premeditated murder and seemed genuinely surprised to find out that Ramirez had died. She asserted that she had never returned to El Cortez after being raped out of fear of bumping into her attacker. Detectives continued to press Patricia in case she was hiding something. According to Slate, Detective Meza told Patricia, "'If you know who killed him, "'this is the time for us to talk about it "'because we don't want you getting into something "'that later on you might not be able to get out of. "'I just get a feeling about you that you know more than what you want to tell us, and you may be protecting somebody. But she insisted there was nothing else to share. What little information they had gathered from Patricia was soon supplemented by findings prompted by other leads. An inspection of Ramirez's truck revealed a dent in the rear bumper next to a small patch of white paint. This corroborated Reyes's statement that they had been run off the road by a white van investigators pinpointed a white Chevy van in Santa Ana that was registered to Gianni Van. This was done as a favor to the real owner of the van, Cody Tran, who was entangled in a methamphetamine charge when the vehicle was purchased. Eventually, investigators received a tip that came in from a janitorial supply service which stocked cleaning supplies at Tran's auto shop an observant janitor noticed a roll of blue towels had been missing, the same type of cloth towel found at the crime scene. This led investigators straight to the shop owned by Tran, who cooperated with detectives when they asked to search the white van and his shop. Detectives knew that it was likely any damage sustained during the car accident would have been repaired by this time. However, during their search of the van, Detectives noticed that the floor mats had all been removed and seemed to be missing. This drew suspicion. A more significant finding, though, were traces of blood found on the walls and the floor of the shop. Tran told detectives that it was probably blood from his employees. Still, investigators retrieved samples for further testing. Since DNA analysis was in its infancy it was difficult to get an exact match with the blood test but the possibility of this being Ramirez's blood could not be ruled out gianni van was finally interviewed on june 13 1995 about 2 months after the murder before he uttered a word one detail stood out van wore his long black hair in a ponytail During interviews, Van denied any knowledge of the victim's death and told detectives he barely knew Cody Tran. Without enough evidence linking Van to the homicide, detectives had no choice but to let him go. They didn't know it at the time, but Santa Ana detectives had missed their chance. The very next day, on June 14th, Patricia and Van hightailed it to Vegas to get married. Tran and Van had come up with an idea to evade criminal charges. If Van and Patricia got married, she would not have to testify against him. The rule of spousal privilege meant one spouse could refuse to testify against the other. As it would turn out, this ploy would delay movement in the case for a very long time. Patricia went along with the marriage plan, even though she did not like it. She told Slate, They told me I had to. I felt confused. I couldn't think. None of her family members or friends even knew about the impromptu union, and she and Van never lived together as a married couple. In March of 1996, law enforcement was ready to make an arrest. Gianni Van was arrested and charged with first-degree murder in connection with Gonzalo Ramirez's death. But when it was discovered he had married a key witness and she refused to testify, detectives knew they had reached a dead end. As frustrating as it was to do so, the murder charge against Van was dropped. Without Patricia's help, the Santa Ana Police Department didn't have enough evidence to move forward. Van was released and confidently believed he had gotten away with murder. Patricia moved on with her life making strides toward a career in helping others. She earned a PhD in clinical psychology at DePaul University. Over the next few years, her clinical research focused on disenfranchised communities who often lacked the skills to cope with conflict and loss. Patricia worked with many urban teenagers from diverse backgrounds. These studies garnered deep respect from her colleagues and were published in medical journals like the Journal of Community Psychology and the Journal of Adolescent Research. In the early 2000s, Patricia met and fell in love with Jorge Manchias, a neurobiologist who taught and researched at UCLA. He proposed in 2001 at Windows on the World, a restaurant at the top of the World Trade Center. The proposal came just one month before the catastrophic 9-11 attacks. When Jorge asked Patricia to marry him, she was elated. But later, she burst into tears and confessed to him that she was already married, but that she had been forced into it. Although Patricia told her fiancé about her previous marriage, she opted to keep the details vague. By mid-2004, she had filed for divorce from Van and went on to marry Manchias. In 2007, Patricia was offered the position of mental health consultant to the World Health Organization in Geneva, Switzerland. This would require her and Jorge to relocate, but she could not turn down this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. She accepted the position and the couple started a new life overseas. They settled into an apartment in a small French town across the Swiss border. Two years later in 2009, Patricia was offered a faculty position at Geneva's Webster University. That same year, she gave birth to a daughter she named Ariana. Now with her own family and her dream job locked into place, everything in Patricia's life was going well. Back in Santa Ana, though, the Gonzalo Ramirez cold case was reopened in 2010. Now equipped with DNA testing, detectives were able to match Ramirez's blood to samples collected from the walls of Trans Transmission Shop. Additional evidence, which was not released to the public, amounted to a much more solid case than there had been 15 years prior. The case that had been cold for so many years was about to heat up. Let me tell you why Thrive Cosmetics has quickly become my go-to brand for skincare and makeup. I'm a huge animal lover, and none of Thrive Cosmetics' products are tested on animals. They're Leaping Bunny and PETA certified as 100% vegan and cruelty-free. On top of that, they're on a mission that's truly bigger than beauty. Whenever an item is purchased, Thrive Cosmetics donates to a nonprofit that helps women thrive. Their donations help women emerging from homelessness, surviving domestic abuse, and more. It's these reasons that Thrive Cosmetics has me feeling all the feels. And guess what? Their products are amazing. I wore their Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara to a wedding recently, and I got so many compliments saying that it looked like I was actually wearing lash extensions. And their Defying Gravity Eye Lifting Cream is an essential part of my daily skincare routine. It's like beauty sleep in a bottle. I love everything about Thrive Cosmetics, their products are the best I've ever used, and their Bigger Than Beauty mission is truly inspiring. You're going to love them as much as I do. Visit thrivecosmetics.com murderish for 15% off your first order. This is an exclusive offer you can only get here. That's thrive, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot murderish for 15% off your first order. thrivecosmetics.com murderish. My husband and I have been using the Calm app to de-stress for quite some time now. We both swear by it. So I was really excited when I learned that Calm wanted to partner with me on Murderish. Calm is an app that contains a huge variety of sleep stories and calming sounds like ocean waves that help you fall asleep. Recently, I got home from work exhausted, but I still had my daughter's volleyball practice to go. I laid down, played one of Calm's sleep stories, and took a really nice power nap. I woke up feeling re-energized and ready to tackle volleyball practice. Murderish is partnering with Calm, the number one mental wellness app, to give you the tools to improve the way you feel. You've got to try Calm's guided meditations. My husband uses them almost daily to improve focus and get a few minutes of time to himself before he tackles a stressful day. If you go to calm.com murderish, you'll get a limited-time offer of 40% off a Calm Premium subscription that comes with hundreds of hours of sleep stories, pleasant sounds, guided meditations, and more. Let Calm help you sleep more, de-stress, and live better. For listeners of the show, Calm is offering a special limited-time promotion of 40% off a Calm Premium subscription at calm.com slash Go to calm.com slash murderish for 40% off unlimited access to Calm's entire library. That's calm.com slash murderish. While it's impossible to control the vibes within our surroundings, you can totally control the vibes in your head with Raycon's wireless earbuds. People are on edge and kind of grumpy lately, but I block it all out as soon as I slip my Raycons into my ears. I wear them to listen to podcasts at the grocery store, during workouts, and while I work. Their improved rubber oil look and feel is sleek, stylish, and they feel comfortable enough to wear for hours. With their optimized gel tips, you get the perfect in-ear fit. What's really cool is that my Raycon earbuds have three different sound profiles to choose from based on what I'm listening to. For podcasts, I use the balanced mode and the pure mode. For music, I use the bass mode so I can really feel the hip-hop music on my playlist. Researching so much true crime has taught me to always be aware of my surroundings. With Raycon's new awareness mode, I can actually listen to my surroundings. I can also take calls with the built-in mic, which is really convenient. Raycon's cost much less than other premium audio brands, but the sound quality is totally on par and they come with a 45-day happiness guarantee. Right now, Murderish listeners can get 15% off their Raycon order at buyraycon.com murderish. That's buyraycon.com murderish to save 15% off on Raycons. buyraycon.com murderish. On October 19, 2012, Patricia Esparza returned to American soil to attend a work conference in St. Louis, Missouri. At around 8.30 p.m., Patricia stopped at Boston's Logan International Airport for a brief layover. Little did Patricia know, she would not be boarding her next flight. It was there she was placed under arrest, completely unaware that she had been wanted as a fugitive. From behind bars, Patricia contacted her husband to let him know what happened. It was only then he learned about the ordeal in 1995, the sexual assault, and the homicide. Regarding this newfound knowledge, Manchias told Orange Coast Magazine, I couldn't believe the gravity of what she had been living with. How could she keep it inside, not want to share it with me? I saw it as a tremendous weight she had been carrying." Patricia was extradited to Orange County Jail, where she was held for two months before consenting to an interview. This time, Patricia admitted that Van had taken her back to El Cortez to identify Ramirez, but Patricia insisted that she had never met Van's friends before that night. As referenced in Slate, she told detectives, I didn't know these people or what they were capable of. She also made it clear that her behavior that night and the subsequent wedding were all as a result of being threatened and intimidated by Van. Patricia's new statements led to a string of indictments. In December, Patricia was released on $300,000 bail and permitted to return to France to get her affairs in order. Over the following year, she flew into California on several occasions to attend hearings and to offer her testimony before a grand jury. She knew her presence in the state could result in having her bail revoked at any time, but she cooperated regardless. In the weeks after Patricia's arrest, most of the other people involved in the abduction and murder were arrested. This included Gianni Van, Shannon Grease, and Diane Tran. Cody Tran was the exception. On July 5th, 2012, During a standoff with police, Cody Tran took his own life. He had violated a restraining order, which was filed by his wife three days prior, after he had threatened to slit her throat. Van, Grease, and Diane Tran were all held on murder charges. In November of 2013, prosecutors gave Patricia an ultimatum, either plead guilty to manslaughter, which would land her a three-year prison term, or stand trial for murder. She struggled immensely with this decision. On one hand, taking the plea would mean reuniting with her husband and then four-year-old daughter sooner. On the other hand, she would be penalized for a crime she did not commit. After giving it heavy thought, Patricia decided to refuse the deal. She explained to Slate, I cannot accept the plea because it would essentially be a lie. I was terrorized." In denying the plea deal, her bail was revoked and she was charged with murder. While the murder case had not garnered much attention the first time around, almost two decades later, each update of the complex case now drew international media coverage. Not just because Patricia was an intelligent and accomplished scholar but because the case raised a lot of questions about victimhood and accountability. There was a surge of support for Patricia from rape victims' rights groups who advocated for the charges against her to be dismissed. A Change.org petition from 2013 titled, Call for the Immediate Release of Patricia Esparza received nearly 7,000 signatures. According to People.com, One segment from the now defunct page stated, "'We are astonished that Norma Patricia, a rape victim, is now being treated as a criminal. In continuing to pursue her, you are sending a troubling message to other rape victims who already have a sense that they will not receive justice within the legal system.'" While the petition did not lead to her release, she was offered a different plea bargain in September of 2014. In exchange for her cooperation and testimony at Van's trial, she would be given the option to plead guilty to voluntary manslaughter. This time, she took the prosecution's deal and agreed to testify against Van on the condition of use immunity, meaning nothing she said in her testimony could be used against her. For her involvement, she would spend six years in prison it was the only way to avoid the possibility of being charged with a greater offense." Van's accomplices received sentences that varied greatly in severity. Diane Tran entered a guilty plea to voluntary manslaughter in 2014. Her four-year sentence was commuted to time served, and she was released in June of the following year. Shannon Grease went to trial in July of 2015, when he was found guilty on one count of special circumstances murder during a kidnapping, and he was sentenced to 25 years to life. Gianni Van's trial was perhaps the most crucial, as prosecutors surmised he played the biggest role in the crime. Van went on trial in Orange County Court on April 13, 2015, two decades after Ramirez had been abducted, tortured, and killed. In opening statements, Van's defense attorney, Jeremy Dolnick portrayed his client as an innocent man who was complicit only by coercion. He claimed Van was kept in the dark about plans to abduct or maim Ramirez. Cody Tran had allegedly shown Van a photo of the victim chained up and severely beaten as a threat. If Van ever snitched, he would meet the same fate. According to an article in the Santa Ana Sentinel, Dolnick told jurors he didn't ask anyone to kill anyone. He never had homicidal thoughts of revenge. But as noted by several media outlets, it was very convenient to pin the murder on Tran, who was dead. Senior Deputy District Attorney Mike Murray honed in on Van's state of mind after hearing about his ex-girlfriend's rape. As cited in the Los Angeles Times, he said, The defendant was out of his mind with anger. He felt that he had been violated, so the defendant butchered Ramirez. Murray presented the jury with photos of the crime scene to convey the extent of Ramirez's injuries. The state medical examiner went into more detail with the autopsy results. According to testimony documented by the Los Angeles Times, Ramirez had suffered a broken jaw multiple skull fractures, contusions, and subdural hemorrhages. The deep lacerations on his torso were caused by a very sharp instrument, later determined to be a meat cleaver. Though the murder weapon was never found, Ramirez had essentially bled to death. With the crime's brutality laid bare, Murray reiterated the jury's objective in this trial. According to the Santa Cruz Sentinel, he said, Gonzalo Ramirez was targeted, and he was targeted by somebody who was going to make sure he suffered. Whether Norma Esparza was sexually assaulted or not, for our purposes today, doesn't matter. What matters is she told the defendant that. This statement shed light on how nonsensical it was to blame Cody Tran for the homicide. Van was the one who had a very clear motive. Then, the courtroom fell silent, enthralled by the sight of Patricia taking the stand. She disclosed the events leading up to the crime, including pointing out her attacker to Van. According to the Orange County Register, she testified, "...we were sitting around a booth next to an entrance or exit, and at some point I see Gonzalo Ramirez walk by. When I see him, I cringe. I didn't want to see him again." Patricia maintained in her testimony, as she always had, that she had no idea what Van and his friends had in store for Ramirez. Just as Diane Tran had testified at her own trial, she thought maybe the men would beat him up. When asked why she didn't notify authorities after seeing Ramirez suspended from chains and severely beaten, Patricia tried her best to express how fearful she was. As she later told Slate, I felt I needed to submit to survive. I'd been broken by the years of abuse by my father. I couldn't assimilate so many traumatic experiences. I felt utterly trapped. News outlets reporting on the trial commended Patricia for her bravery in testifying. A friend of hers, Eloise Martinez, told an Associated Press correspondent. She hopes the case empowers other rape victims to come forward. She added, I truly believe had she said something when it happened, maybe she wouldn't be here today. Less than a month into the trial, in early May, the jury reached a verdict. They found Gianni Van guilty of murder during the commission of a kidnapping. Before Van's sentencing, a statement from Benito Ramirez, one of the victim's brothers, was read aloud by Senior Deputy DA Mike Murray. As quoted in the Orange County Register, it read, It is a loss that is irreparable. We always think of him, especially when we are together as a family, and he is not seated at the table with us. There is no doctor or medicine that could cure that type of pain. It tortures us to think of every single hack or gash that was given to him. It tortures and breaks our hearts to know how he was dumped like an animal on the side of the road. Little solace was felt when Orange County Superior Court Judge Greg L. Prickett handed down Van's sentence. He would spend life in state prison without the possibility of parole. Murray was also disappointed by the lack of culpability from any of the defendants. He told the Associated Press it just didn't happen. They murdered Gonzalo Ramirez and I didn't hear one of them take responsibility for that. Also absent from public commentary was any mention of the culture of victim blaming. Patricia Esparza did not orchestrate the kidnapping of Ramirez nor urge anyone to pursue revenge. Though she had remained mostly silent about the assault, she had been forthcoming with school officials. The system failed her, and the perpetrators had put themselves into a vigilante role. All of these cracks were laid bare by this case, but none of these larger systematic failings were addressed. The black and white nature of the US legal system simply was not conducive to solving the deeper issues of this complex crime. About two years after Van was sentenced, he and his attorney filed an appeal. The document cited two jury instructions that were inaccurate, the exclusion of evidence, and the jury prejudice based on the errors. The appeal was dismissed, with the judgment and sentencing upheld. Today, Gianni Van remains in California State Prison. No updates have been made by the press about Norma Patricia Esparza, whose release is slated for 2022. Shortly after her incarceration, her husband Jorge told Orange Coast Magazine that Patricia can only cope with her past if what she did, the choices she made, helped somebody. Maybe there'll be a rape victim somewhere that will go to the police. Maybe some prosecutors will treat cases like hers better. Try to support women who are vulnerable. There is no happy ending for anyone in this case. A woman who was victimized had no advocates at the time, and she confided in the wrong person, which resulted in a brutal murder. If school officials had reported Patricia's sexual assault, perhaps the victim in this case would have been brought to justice for his alleged crime. While many people believe that Patricia bears no responsibility for the murder, Gonzalo Ramirez would probably still be alive today if Patricia had not pointed him out to Gianni Van, It's a complex tragedy with many people at whom you could point out as being culpable for the crime. It is a case for which we have answers, but little resolution. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Murderish. If you like the show and have 60 seconds of free time, do me the biggest favor, and give Murderish a five-star rating and review in your favorite podcast app. Positive ratings and reviews help new listeners find the show, and I also love hearing from you guys. Also, follow me on Instagram at Murderish Podcast. It's my favorite place to engage with you guys. You can also find me on Twitter and Facebook. Check out Murderish.com if you want to buy Murderish t-shirts, face masks, coffee mugs, and more. If you want more Murderish content, Go to Murderish.com and click the link to go behind the scenes and become a Patreon subscriber. Patreon subscribers get immediate access to bonus content as well as other perks. Thank you to Nada N for becoming a Patreon subscriber. I really appreciate you. Murderish sound design and audio editing is by Justin Hellstrom. Music is by Nico of We Talk of Dreams. This episode was researched and written by Alison Schwartz. Stick around after the closing music and ads to hear a list of sources used for this episode. As always, ishers, thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. And remember, listening to this podcast does not make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish. Sources for this episode include a February 10, 2014, Slate article by Emily Bazelon, a November 23, 2013, article at People.com by Casey Blum, a February 27, 2014, OC Weekly article by Matt Coker, a July 15, 2016, article in the Los Angeles Times by Jeremiah Dobruck, a Los Angeles Times print article dated May 8, 2015, by Christopher Goffard. A February 26, 2014, Orange Coast Magazine article by Matthew Heller. A February 25, 2014 article in the Orange County Register by Tony Savedra. An August 12, 2021 article at Oxygen.com by Jill Setterstrom. An April 16, 2015 article in the San Diego Union Tribune by Amy Taxon. An April 15, 2015 Santa Cruz Sentinel article by Amy Taxon. A July 16, 2016 print article in the Desert Sun by Amy Taxon. Information dated August 30, 2017, and found at legal.com, that's L E A G L E.com, titled People v. Van, case number G052325. Information dated July 1st, 2019 and found at census.gov. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends.